Ornithologically Correct is currently unsponsored, but it's made possible. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the latest edition of Ornithologically Correct with Josh Lynn. I am, of course, Josh Lynn, your humble and esteemed host for the evening. A lot of big news here. Got a pretty eventful uh, couple last last few days in, in the land of the Baltimore Orioles, so I figured it was an apropos time to, to jump back onto the pod and give you guys some more of my uh, half-baked opinions, of course. So, uh, the big biggest news, uh, well, up until earlier today, was the signing of closer Craig Kimbrell uh, to a one-year deal with a uh, team option for 2025. Uh, he will ostensibly slot in as the Orioles' closer as Felix Batista rehabs and recovers from Tommy John surgery and prepares to uh, come back in 2025 and, and retake his, his rightful place. Uh, it was uh, a bit of a polarizing move, I would say, uh, just gauging gauging Orioles Twitter. I know a lot of a lot of people were excited, a lot of people not so much. Um, a lot of people uh, were tuned into the Phillies postseason games uh, this past off season or this past postseason and uh, saw a couple of uh, off performances that may have made them not a huge fan of this move. Uh, I personally am a big proponent of this move. Um, but before I, I get into that, I just break down the player himself. Uh, one of the best closers in history. Uh, granted, he's 36 years old and he's not at the peak of his powers anymore, but he's still uh, more than serviceable re- reliever. Uh, but again, one of the best closers of all time. He's currently eighth all time in career saves and looks to add to that total in uh, 2024 for the Orioles last year had a three, two, six ERA for the Phillies and struck out 94 in 69 innings, which was a nice bounce back for him after his 2022, uh, for the Dodgers when he was still, uh, serviceable, but not typical Kimbrel. So to see him uh, rebound in a full season with Philly, uh, I, th- I believe he had over 70 appearances as well. It was nice to see. And again, uh, the terms of the contract, uh, the first year is guaranteed. Uh, Sports Illustrated had it listed at $12 million with the 2025 option being $13 million, which uh, I know caused some sticker shock, uh, certainly because the Orioles are not uh, accustomed to spending that much money for a reliever. Uh, If you'll remember, after the 2013 season, uh, they traded Jim Johnson to Oakland. Uh, for Jamile Weeks and what was essentially a, a salary dump because I think he was owed something in the neighborhood of $9, 10000000 million in arbitration that year. So this is uncharted waters for the Orioles. It's encouraging to see them uh, make such an investment th- this early in uh, during the winter meetings, which uh, has generally been a very inactive period other than like the Rule 5 draft. So uh, just to see them actually making good on their stated intentions to to add is is really encouraging and uh 
you know, starts the offseason off on a good note, which is something I think Orioles fans really needed after last year. Uh, I know myself, I just I really wanted to see that intent to compete and the intent to to add to what we had last year um, and, you know, keep that momentum rolling and, and give the Orioles the best chance to be competitive. So this certainly does that. Um, and and like I said, it's not uh, peak Braves Kimbrel from the mid 2010s, but he's still good. Uh, fastball, curveball, that's what you're getting from him. It's what you've pretty much always gotten from him. And while his velo is is not what it was, uh, it's still very good. Uh, he averaged 95.8 miles per hour with his four seamer last year and was touching 98 on occasion. So that's plenty of gas in the tank. And he's still an elite strikeout pitcher. Like I said, he had the 94 strikeouts in 69 innings pitched, uh, and that put him in the 98th percentile uh, for for his uh, strikeout rate amongst qualified major league pitchers. Um, and this is insane. At pretty since Statcast has been recording this data uh, in 2015, every other year besides 2022, the down year with the Dodgers, he was either in the 99th or 100th percentile in strikeout rate. And then last year he was in the 98th. Uh, so you know what you're getting. You're getting a lot of strikeouts, not a lot of balls in play. Uh, misses bats, which is obviously comes with the strikeouts, but uh, 90th percentile in, in whip percentage. Um, so again, like the breaking pitch is still very effective for him. He still gets results based on that. So, you know, even if there was an additional dip in velocity, I, I still think the fastball breaking ball combo is good enough for him. Um, and then additionally, he had his other stat cast metrics were very, very encouraging. Uh, 95th percentile in expected batting average, 86th percentile in expected ERA. And then he was middle of the road in chase rate, which is balls outside the strike zone. He's in the 53rd percentile. Um, so yeah, he was still pretty average in that regard. Uh, big, just big on missing bats. That's the key to his success. Um, Part of why is because he is an extreme fly ball pitcher. Uh, generally has been throughout his career. Um, 65% of the balls, uh, batted balls he threw last year were hit into the air between pop-ups, uh, fly balls, and line drives. So the infielders will not be getting a lot of work when Kimbrell is in the game. Um, now, Again, like I said, the key is is to for him is missing bats because when he does allow contact, it's pretty loud. Uh, he was in the fourth percentile in hard hit percentage and the thirteenth percentile in barrel percentage. So, his best formula is, uh, you know, low curveballs, uh, elevated fastballs, um, just staying away from the good contact zones, um, and this kind of led to um, a home run issue last year. Um, his home run per fly ball rate was a uh, career high last year. Uh, it was a little under 15%, which is bad. Um, there's it's objectively not good, but it's about 4% higher than his career average, which is 10.9%. Uh, and it's just, uh, higher than the major league average itself. So there is hope that that was a bit of a fluke and not very sustainable. And in addition to that, he was playing in Philadelphia and there are certain, uh, certain outfield 
uh, lineups the Phillies could um, could put out there that were not good defensively. Like when they had Schwarber out there, Castellanos is not a good not a good fielder at all. Um, so in those situations, I would imagine a few of those um, fly balls that became base hits and were just home runs were in parts of the poor outfield defense that the Phillies could employ. Now, granted, they could make a few subs and change it like with Rojas and uh, Christian Pache. Um, but I think the combination of moving from Philly, which is an extreme hitters park, as we all know, to Baltimore, which is now much more of a pitcher's park and not with the left uh, left field wall aiding him as a right-handed pitcher. Uh, I think that can't help that home run fly ball ratio can't help but decrease. I think even, even if he locates the exact same, puts those pitches the exact same, I think just the fact that he'll be pitching in Camden yards, the majority of the time will, um, will behoove him. And as far as balls that get in the park, we have, you know, gold Glover out there. Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes is out there, although he can potentially move, but then you have like Cowser, who's a decent outfielder. So there's going to be plenty of guys waiting to catch, catch his fly balls. So I, I don't think the home run issue is one that will persist or one that will be a detriment to the point that he's not effective. I, I still think he's going to be very good. And, and really, I also support this move just because of what it means for the rest of the Orioles bullpen. Um, this, I would imagine, and I'm just speculating that this means Cano will be used as more of a high leverage, uh, multi-inning reliever. Um, so like if there's a situation where like seventh inning two through four is coming up in the lineup and the Orioles are holding on to a, uh, you know, one or two run lead, I could see them bringing him in to go to get, you know, five or or even six outs. He did so quite a bit last year and having him decommitted from the ninth inning is a huge boost to the bullpen. Um, Cause we really got, got a glimpse of how taxed they were after Felix Batista went down. It was, it was at times really difficult for Brandon Hyde to, to piece those late innings together just because he wasn't dealing with all of his, all of the the cards in his deck. So Cano moving to that role, Kimbrell being the traditional ninth inning closer is a huge help. And even further down, the effect that it has on the other relievers, I think will be tremendous um, because you saw last year after Felix went out, we had guys like uh, Cieno Perez, uh, Hall, uh, Jacob Webb, and even Mike Bauman was pitching seventh and eighth innings in certain occasions. So to be able to move them down, um, especially a guy like Ciano Perez, who I think is very good and was really, really good at the end of last year, uh, to have him available in the sixth inning or even the fifth on a bad start, as opposed to the seventh or eighth, is a huge, huge benefit to the Orioles. And again, and that goes to the same guys like uh, Danny Coulomb was in that in that boat, who's an elite left-handed hitter or left-handed relief pitcher. So you can move him to a more matchup based role. Uh, you have Dylan Tate coming back, who was a good setup man in 22. But now again, you have him for the middle innings, Jacob Webb, who I like better in lower leverage roles. And then 
um, D.L. Hall and Tyler Wells, should they remain uh, bullpen pieces? I'm not sure about Wells. I think Hall would be the the safer bet there to stay in the bullpen. But the the knock-on effect that signing Kimbrell has for everybody else is is huge. And I think that will that will present itself as a huge benefit as the season progresses. Um, and that, and who's not to say the Orioles don't add another uh, reliever. Uh, maybe like I, there are still some free agents out there. I would, I think would be intriguing. Um, like Dylan Floro is another one. Uh, John Brebbia is another guy I mentioned before. Um, Brent Suter, although I don't know if they want to add another lefty. So this kind of enables them to, you know, if they want to sign a a less expensive option, that could still be just as beneficial to them. Uh, or if they are listening to me, they will add Gregory Santos to a Dylan Cease trade package. Just throwing that out there, Michael Elias, please. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it on Kimball. Uh, good pickup. I, I don't think, I mean, I think there will be some appearances where he you know, loses his command and might blow a save. Uh, it's not going to be as automatic as, as Felix Batista was last year. And I, I think that's one thing that is going to be unfair is he's naturally going to get compared to Batista because that was Batista's role. And he's just not that. Um, and really who else is um, other than maybe John Duran, but he, it's just, he's not Felix Batista. And I think if we go in with those expectations and just go in thinking, you know, expecting, a good effective reliever who will occasionally have his ups and downs. I think we'll be happy. I really, I really truly do. Uh, and again, it's just, um, it'll be curious to see if they add any other bullpen pieces. I think now they're certainly going to pivot to, to finishing, finishing up acquiring a, a starting pitcher because I think that would, that was the number one priority anyway. Um, so I wouldn't, I, if I had to guess, I would say that we acquire a starting pitcher before another bullpen arm, but Definitely don't think we're done. And I, I, I think that's an encouraging thing to take out of all of this. And uh, now moving on to the topic du jour, are the Orioles going to get sold? Is, is John Angelos going to be out of our lives? Uh, is the, the scourge of our existence finally going to make himself just an anonymous shadow and fuck off? Um, Bloomberg, who is a reputable news source, appears to think that a uh, investor named David Rubenstein is interested in acquiring the Baltimore Orioles, which set Orioles Twitter alight, myself included. Uh, it was super funny. It just, like, we all just, it just turned into a giant, like, celebratory prayer circle, um, just ranging from cautiously optimistic to pure jubilance. Uh, and it's just great. And it just kind of goes to show the uh how john angelos has completely incinerated any goodwill he had when he took over control from his father uh and it's just yeah how can you not be excited by that uh especially considering we are going into this period of competitiveness with the looming doubts of whether we try to extend any stars like adley rutschman or gunner henderson or if they were going to make any significant free agent expenditures uh, and significant payroll increases, uh, a billionaire acquiring the team I, ostensibly would help. And just the fact that he's not John Angelos. So yeah, I, I mean, 
you can't help but be optimistic, but I wanted to kind of do my, uh, do a little deep dive, a, a David deep dive on David Rubenstein. Uh, he was born and raised in Baltimore. So that is the connection he has to the club. Uh, he then went to uh, Duke University, go Blue Devils, uh, for college, and then uh, additionally went to the University of Chicago. Uh, I believe he is still, from what I've read, he's, he appears to still be local to the DMV area. Um, see, he's the co-founder of the Carlisle Group, which is a ginormous investment fund, asset management group. Uh, they currently control a little under $400 billion in assets, uh, real estate, things of that nature. Um, I can't even, that's just such an unfathomable number, um, 400 billion. That just makes no damn sense. Um, and he's actually not like, like you would imagine those investment fund billionaires to be these like anonymous shadowy figures in the background, but he's actually quite the opposite. Uh, he hosts an interview show on Bloomberg TV and uh, additionally a history show on PBS. And he, yeah, he appears to be a giant history nerd. Uh, I think uh, this, uh, the additional information I share will kind of make that obvious, but yeah, big history nerd. So I kind of appreciate that. Uh, he's also a government official, a current government official. He is the uh, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is essentially, it's just a foreign policy think tank, a uh, bunch of smart people, you know, politicians, former secretaries of state, CIA directors, uh, professors, other intellectuals, people of high esteem, uh, basically collaboratively help with any you know foreign policy, foreign relations. I, I think they organize meetings uh, between various delegations. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a big deal basically. <laughs> um, and the the thing that was uh, most interesting to me, uh, he is a huge philanth a philanthropist. Um, it would take me a long time to rattle through all of the significant contributions he's made. So I just wanted to highlight a few. Um, the main ones that were interesting of interest to me, he owns the Magna Carta, like like the actual thing, not like the concept of it or a Wikipedia article, like he owns the actual document. Um, in addition to a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, the Declaration of Independence, and uh, he's lent those all to the National Archives, which I think is uh, admirable, um, allowing them to be viewed by the public and instead of just kind of hoarded in a private collection. I think that's cool. Um, and then the other main uh, contribution of note I thought was I thought was interesting. Uh, he's donated roughly nine and a half million dollars to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. for a panda exhibit. Uh, big panda guy, this David Rubenstein. And how can you not? They're pretty adorable. Um, and then there's also been uh, other contributions of multi-million dollars, sometimes even tens of millions of dollars. Uh, he contributed to repair the Washington Monument, uh, helped build a library at Mount Vernon, which was George Washington's uh, residence, donated to Monticello for renovations, Thomas Jefferson's re residence, donated to the Arlington National Cemetery, uh, Lincoln Memorial re uh, renovation. He built a pancreatic cancer san center at Sloan Kettering. Uh, not the guy that uh, Brennan Huff smoked pot with. This is Sloan Kettering, the hospital in New York City. 
uh, also donated to the Library of Congress, in addition to his two alma maters, Duke and U Chicago, and also donated to Johns Hopkins, uh, PBS, which makes sense because he has a show there, and also made a significant contribution to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. So obviously you can't, like, we have no idea how he would be as a sports owner because he's never been one before, and most of us had not heard of this guy until today. But it could really go one of two ways for me. Just and again, just gleaning some quick biography stuff. Um, he obviously comes from the background of asset management. The Orioles are an asset. They Camden Yards is property. Granted, they don't own it. Um, so he could approach it from the lens of asset management and just kind of operate it in a way that maximizes its revenue, maximizes its value. Or um, he obviously, like I said, he's a huge history buff. He is very, uh, very much passionate about culture, history, the arts, and has, you know, his donations have, have indicated that. So he very clearly likes to spend uh, dumbass billionaire money on things that he's interested in or thinks are important. So if he's an Orioles fan, which he very well could be because he was born and raised in Baltimore and he views this as a, a way to contribute to the community, he could be more in the ilk of John Milton, the Phillies owner who likes to spend and be, you know, uh, appreciates his his role as a steward of the club and and acknowledges its its role as a public institution and treats it as such and invests in it as such um which would obviously be the preferred option like i can't imagine an orioles team with the players we have with an owner who's willing to spend that like it's a <laughs> it sounds like a cocaine fever dream to be honest with you um so hopefully it goes that way and another thing i i think that would not cause me concern, but would be something to think about is how that would affect the front office apparatus. Because for as much shit as we give John Angelos and for how generally incompetent he is, the reason our baseball ops has been overhauled and the reason it is what it is today, it was greenlit by John Angelos. John Angelos brought Mike Elias in. He gave Mike Elias autonomy to build his front office and to make these decisions. And he's, by all accounts, stayed out of baseball-related decisions. So there's no guarantee that David Rubenstein would do that. There's also no guarantee that he would keep them here. Um, now, I'm sure, I don't think there would be like a mass exodus or anything like that. But it, it is one thing to look look for because this this front office is endorsed by the current owner and not any prospective future owners. But I, again, there's just, it's hard to look at this in any way but a positive considering our current ownership situation. And uh, it's it's also going to be interesting to see how the lease negotiations proceed now that these rumors are out there. Um, because if John Angelos is trying to strong arm the state government into giving him more money, um, which would presumably beef up the sale price. Uh, I don't know. I feel like that kind of takes 
leverage away from him. Not that he really had much in the first place, because uh, as, as far as I know, state law dictates the Ravens and Orioles be treated equally. Um, but this surely would would rid him of any leverage he he may have had. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that works. Um, but I do like these these rumors. This report came from Bloomberg. I, it's it's legitimate uh, for as as much flack as certain media outlets get. Bloomberg is reputable. They don't miss on this stuff. So it's very real. So we're just going to have to wait and see. And um, thankfully, it doesn't appear to be affecting any offseason plans because they they uh, shelled out money for Kimbrell and it looks like they're working some trade front. They've been rumored for to be in on Dylan Cease, which is really good to hear. So uh, just an, a, another exciting storyline to follow in addition to everything that's happening on the field. So if anything else happens, you know, we will be talking about it here on Ornithologically Correct. It's going to be a bit of an abbreviated show today. Just wanted to hop on and talk to you about those two juicy Orioles nuggets that we got. And uh, hopefully there'll be more on the way. And I will be back with you as soon as any Orioles news breaks. And we'll be here to dissect it and talk about it. In the meantime, if you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at JJLINNJJ. You could follow the site at the underscore OC underscore podcast. Like and rate and subscribe our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find it. If you find it in a ditch, leave five stars in the ditch. I don't care. I'll go pick them up. I just appreciate any feedback, any ratings, any subscriptions, uh, any interactions with y'all. I appreciate just trying to make this the best podcast I can for anybody that wants to come along for the ride with us. So I appreciate y'all. And until next time, I've been Josh Lynn. This has been Ornithologically Correct. Let's go O's.